0: Welcome to another episode of the SAM Ram's Who's Who in Academic Emergency Podcast. My name is Hamza Ejaz, and today I'm joined with Dr. Doc Mike Dusandi from Stanford. Welcome.
1: This is such a treat to be with you. I can't believe you asked me. Just so excited. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, thanks for coming all the way from California today. So just for the listeners, Dr. Dusandi is joining us from Stanford, where he serves as the Vice Chair of Education. He's an internationally renowned researcher in medical education, and he's also an expert in the application of social media and medical education. On top of all this, he's heavily involved in the ALEM, the blog series, as well as having previously served as the program director at Northwestern. So quite a renowned expert in medical uh, multiple topics here. So thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So let's start from the very beginning. So when you were first thinking about residencies and where to apply in terms of the specialties, and the different incredible options that there are within the House of Medicine. How did you first decide on emergency medicine?
1: Well, the story begins with my mother, who was an ER nurse, and my dad, who was a fireman. And my mom would work the three to 11, and my dad would work 24 hours on, 72 hours off. And we really didn't have a babysitter. So every fourth night, I would go to the hospital with my mom, and I would stay in the nurse's lounge, and I'd do my homework, and I'd have dinner with my mom. And it was, you know, back before HIPAA you know, in the prehistoric ages. So the doctors would come and get, you know, like the 10 year old boy and be like, Hey, come look at this cool trauma. And I'd go out and it was gross. and it was cool. So I, you know, I wanted to be a doctor from a young age, but I resisted emergency medicine actually, because I thought it was sort of cliche to go into the specialty that, you know, i had grown up in. So I tried, tried a lot of other specialties on along the way. And ultimately realized that my my people were emergency medicine, and that was my home all along. So I guess when an, an ER nurse and a fireman get together, they make little emergency medicine physicians.
0: Yeah, so your origin story starts off pretty young, and that's pretty fascinating to hear the that background. That's incredible. But on top of all that, you mentioned, you know, the people, and I think that part speaks so heavily about our specialty in terms of, is just the right fit for the, the people that are within emergency medicine, both from the physicians, the, the advanced practice providers, the nurses, the medics, the entire staff that works in the emergency department. It's just an incredible group of people to be working alongside. So I totally connect with what you're saying there.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's our our people are our people. It's very clear when you're in the emergency department that we're just a little bit of a different breed and, you know, the team atmosphere is is palpable. And, and, and again, I knew that from a young age, I've, everyone was... Kind of cool with a 10-year-old hanging out in the nurse's lounge, to be quite honest. And uh at least from my perspective as a 10-year-old. So I grew up in that space. And I went on and I in late high school and then and through college, I was a phlebotomist and got to see the hospital from a different perspective before I applied to medical school. I worked, you know, I did the requisite time volunteering in various clinics along the way. And I worked in an infectious disease clinic both in where I went to college in DC and then uh, later in medical school in Chicago. Chicago. So I tried, I tried a lot of hats on, but I think ultimately, you know, our people are very attractive and, you know, they make for a wonderful career environment. So yeah, I've always been at home in the emergency department.
0: That's so fascinating. Now taking a little bit of a step forward in terms of now you're in residency, you've completed a residency, you're training, and now you're developing your niche within academic emergency medicine. So as I alluded to earlier, you have done extensive research within uh, medical education and within emergency medicine and within the house of medicine altogether. Now, how did these interests first come
1: to be? Again, remember, I'm from the prehistoric age. So, when I was a resident, there were no medical education fellowships per se. And I remember very distinctly, I was a second year, I was working a shift with my program director at the time, uh, Dr. Rebecca Smith Coggins, who's just nearing retirement now in, in our shop. But Dr. Smith Coggins was a really wonderful educator and and i wanted to follow in her footsteps actually that's the reason i went to stanford was because i was so taken by her on interview day i at the end of of all of it i just wanted to work for her and you know never regretted that decision at all but anyway i i was a second year resident i was on shift with her and i told her that i wanted to do what she did and i wanted to do medical education for my career and you know she thought that was great and i said well how do i how do i train to do what you did and she's like well i just you know I just fell into it. I was a good teacher and someone gave me a job. And I'm like, well, that's not that's not how I think I should do it. So she was very helpful. And we looked around, and at the time, there was a a faculty development fellowship at two other programs and one at Wright State in Ohio that I chatted with extensively and ended up replicating their fellowship at Stanford with the help of an internal medicine uh, program director who had a PhD in education as well. So I did a faculty development fellowship, actually. So I I focused all of the med ed training on faculty and and how do you get a faculty member promoted efficiently and effectively through the professoriate? That was sort of the focus of the fellowship. So it's a lot of career development and career planning work that goes into that. And, uh, you know, can you imagine what is what skills does it take for an assistant Professor to become an associate professor, they have to write papers, they have to get grants, they have to give lectures, they have to create a regional reputation. So all of those skills building that, you know, how do you teach that stuff, that was the the, the focus of the fellowship. So it served me very well in my career. You know, I went from that fellowship to an associate residency director job at Northwestern and then eventually program director. And much of what I did in those roles, you know, w- was very similar just at the resident level, right? Skills building for folks who are in academics, you know future faculty members. And you know how do you get them prepared for their first faculty job? That's sort of how i I trained my residents at Northwestern. I assumed they were all going into academics unless stated otherwise, and we just trained them as if they were. So those skills really transferred quite well. My original fellowship was was new, and it still is the what what is now our medical education scholarship fellowship? The SAM approved scholarship fellowship at Stanford is that old fellowship that has just changed names and focus many times over the years, but now is one of the SAM approved um, fellowships.
0: That's incredible to hear. Now, going into a little bit more about that, you have residents that you've trained, you know, countless residents that you've been involved with in their training. Now, speaking more about the residents who are interested in academics and in medical education specifically. Let's say they're a junior resident or a senior resident or even for example early fellows now, what advice would you offer to them who are interested in medical education about how to become better educators out of the
1: bedside or within their department? Yeah now the, the game is very different. there's so much out there and much of it produced by Sam frankly on how to be a better educator in general there are certainly day off certificate courses and things that um, are open to residents at the um, annual meeting and such and some of the other professional societies offer these similar um, experiences too so there's you know there's opportunities as a resident to to take a course learn some principles of adult learning and medical education that go beyond just being a good bedside teacher i think lots of us are, are good bedside teachers and our specialty is full of faculty who are are great bedside teachers there's something different between being a great bedside teacher and being a medical educator in my mind medical education is its own principal domain that has its own body of knowledge and its own research methodology that may look different than clinical or basic science research but it's no less rigorous so it's a group of people who are aware of uh, the literature and medical education that use learning theory appropriately, that use modern assessment methods appropriately to put on programs that have been designed using best curriculum design practices appropriately. So these are, you know, they're not just your, your average everyday good bedside teacher. So I think one of the first steps is for a resident to decide, well, you know, is this a path I'm going to go down professionally? And we can talk about that in a second, making that decision. Or, you know, am I looking to pick up really great bedside teaching skills? And both of those can be trained certainly, and they they both can be trained through SAM, for instance, in pre conference workshops and things that they have. Um, but but I do think that you know a distinction should be made. I think between your not average but great bedside teachers that that populate emergency medicine, but taking those average and then looking distinctly at a group of people who are who are professionals in a particular domain. And I, you know I think a good analogy would be you know there are programmatic researchers in this world who fund themselves extramurally and have labs and things. And then there's those of us who do like do a research project here and there. And, you know, are we researchers? Like, I guess we are, but you know, the programmatic researchers would probably turn their nose up a little bit when they think, well, you didn't get your master's of clinical science and investigation and et cetera, et cetera. cetera. You know what I'm I'm making the analogy for here. So I, I do think that medical education is its own field and its own body of knowledge. And it just, you know, you have to make that decision to enter that area. And I think, you know, students, and then I think students and residents who are interested in medical education only know what they know. So sometimes when you're thinking, I want to do medical education, you think, well, I want to be a residency director, because that's that's who a medical educator is to you sometimes. But But the field of medical education is extremely broad. And I would say that there are, far more opportunities at the undergraduate medical education level, UME, versus residency, GME, graduate medical education level. The dean's office has dozens of different positions that are quite task specific, the assistant dean of that, the associate dean of this, that each require substantive content knowledge. And folks who pursue medical education fellowships certainly can focus on those UME domains and find really robust careers working in the dean's office, as opposed to you know working in in residency education. Though I would say most of my fellows I've seen over the years go into GME at least initially. We're seeing more and more fellowship applicants now who who specifically want careers in UME. They like teaching medical students. You know, being a clerkship director will be a stepping stone, but a stepping stone into the dean's office, and they realize that. So making those those decisions somewhat early is difficult, but it's also fun. It's the career exploration part of being a resident and trying to figure out what paths could be in front of me that I, I just don't know yet. It's like looking at all the other fellowships. If you happen not to have one at your shop, but you're interested in it, you have to do a little bit of sweat equity and work to, to be able to figure out what it really is like to be a toxicologist if you don't have toxic your program, et cetera.
0: Yeah, you bring up a great point in terms of the residents who are interested in medical education fellowships in terms of trying to determine and delineate amongst themselves whether it's going to be that UME level of career development that they're seeking or that GME level of career development. And just talking to you know faculty mentors who are interested in this and the faculty at our shop who are interested in this, it's just inter- you know it's very fascinating when you hear their thoughts and where they come up from in terms of their initial interests and how they kind of help dist- uh, distinguish themselves between UME versus GME. And of course, there's a little bit of a crossover, but it's just fascinating in terms of, the nuances that it comes into you know once you choose a fellowship uh, the further aspects of like how do you develop your niche within medical education itself
1: yeah you know it's it's interesting, right? We can take these really great bedside teachers in our specialty and think, well you know of of all these great teachers, wow, like Hansa, you're the best teacher, so we're going to make you the assistant residency director after you graduate, and you might be you know still a great lecturer, and the residents love working with you and you know, you're so effective that, hey, maybe I'll be a program director. And then you get into this job, you don't have the content knowledge necessarily to do all the things that you need to do, right? So, you know, the ACGME has very, very extensive assessment expectations now of program directors. And, you know, similarly with the LCME for clerkship directors, you want to put on curricula, you want to assess your residents appropriately. And these are are skill sets that you might not have picked up along the way unless you purposely put yourself in training experiences not necessarily you know master's degrees though i think master's degrees are becoming somewhat of a prerequisite at some of the big programs to be the clerkship director or the program director i think we're watching a crop of assistant directors coming up now who have done fellowships or master's degrees and are going to be the most competitive applicants five ten years from now for the pd jobs but but you know doing training programs that are certificate only or a day or two here, where at least you can pick up some of the extra skills that you might need to be able to do these jobs meaningfully. I think a lot of folks get into these jobs because they're just the great teacher and everybody likes them, and that's great. And that's why they, they deserve the job. But once they get there, they I want them to thrive, right? I don't want them to struggle. And I think sometimes those first couple of years of action energy is just trying to figure out the job and what you have to do and how to be good at the various tasks. And if you could front load that in someone's training. I mean, I believe in MD, MED, medical, Master's of Medical Education. I believe that is a very valid career path for a medical student. You know, we give MD, MBAs and MD, MSs all of the time. Why are we not giving MD, MEDs to, you know, this huge group of people who are going to have to run our medical schools? That's a lot of graduates out there that would benefit from an M- MD, MED. So, you know, I think the earlier that you can front load that, you can reduce the opportunity cost later for folks when they get into these positions and they're not trying to learn assessment methods when they could be advancing their program in other more interesting and novel ways.
0: I think you guys should work on getting that MD, MED, you know, up the ground at Stanford. It'd be awesome. You hear MD MBAs, you see the MD MPHs, but the educators and I think getting that experience early on in collaboration
1: with your medical education itself would be an awesome experience. Well, our fellows all get a master's degree. It doesn't necessarily have to be at Stanford. In fact, many of them choose to do online master's degrees at other institutions just by virtue of what the program might look like, a focus on research or you know, what have you. Our master's degree is an MS in uh, education. And it's a really great graduate school of education, but it focuses a lot on theory and primarily theory for like K through 12 education. And some of it translates well, but it's not a master's in medical education and there's you know schools that offer specifically that um, university of cincinnati your home being one of them you know it's sometimes more career uh, specific to medicine to be able to go after those online so there's some really great programs out there that are available to any resident or fellow as long as you're willing to take you know online classes
0: No, oh, yeah there's incredible resources out there depending on just what the interests are now let's take a step back and talk a little bit more about your involvement with social media and how that pertains to medical education. I've, you know, listened to a bunch of your talks and seen a lot of your posts online about how we can utilize or leverage social media to promote your own scholarship academically, but also to disseminate knowledge as well. So, how do you what kind of resources or how do you go about building your platform on social media for medical education?
1: Yeah, that's a good word, Hamza platform. I love that you picked that up along the way. So I'll tell a little bit of the origin story and then let's get back to the platform in just a second. But before 2014, I had never been on social media. And another disclaimer that I need to say up front is that I've never had a Facebook account. Like, I don't really know how Facebook works. You know, there's, there's posts and there's a wall of some sort that you can put things on, or at least there used to be. So, you know, for this guy who claims to be an expert in social media, there's there's certainly platforms I've never used. And one of the more common ones being Facebook. But I went to a talk at SAM. It was the SAM in Dallas in 2014. It was the end of the day. So residents, when you're tired, I was a, I was a faculty member, but you know, you're tired. You've been to talks all day long. The last four o'clock talk. Like, You could go to the bar and have some drinks, or you could still go to that last talk. And the last talk of the day was on social media and it was on getting tenure. And it was called from Twitter to tenure. And I didn't have Twitter at the time. I wasn't on social media at the time, but I thought, well, I would really like tenure. So let me go learn about Twitter. And Michelle Lynn was was one of the panelists and you know the editor-in-chief from Alium, Academic Life and Emergency Medicine. And we're good friends going back many, many years. I was her her resident on her first attending shift. So I, I often tell her that her career could have gone in one of two directions that day. She's lucky she had me. But you know, this was many years ago. After the panel, I made an appointment with her to grab some coffee and we talked about. What social media could be used for in medical education, and three months later, we started the Emergency Medicine Match Advice series. So it started right in 2014, and it's continued on now. I think you know we do an episode every quarter or so. We're at episode 35 or 36 now. We cover you know various topics um, that are important to medical students. So um, how do you make a rank list? How do you shine on interview day? How do you get honors in your emergency medicine clerkship? Things like that. But that's where you know that's where it started and. Over the years, I started using social media for a lot of different projects and in fact have over the years been invited to speak internationally based upon relationships I've built on Twitter, you know, with people who I've never met before have invited me to give talks at conferences for two different conferences, the keynote talks at two conferences based upon our interactions on Twitter, which is just crazy to me that I was able to build platform that would get me that invitation. So what do I mean by platform? So platform in book publishing is your reach as an author, like how many books that you could potentially sell if you were to be picked up by a publishing house. So that means you have to have some notoriety or you have to have a job potentially that would attract readers. So for instance, um, physician authors at Stanford have pretty good platform. They're a physician, people like reading books by physicians and they're at Stanford, people like reading books by people from institutions like Stanford. So automatically you would get platform, right? So physician authors often have a pretty easy time publishing a book at Stanford, so they have platform. And in a world of academic medicine, we hear about the need for regional reputation to be promoted to associate professor and then national, or even in some cases, international reputation at some institutions to be able to go to full professor. And you know it's much harder for me to understand what national reputation means, especially when people specialize in such a specific area. So take the basic scientist who's the expert in the little telomere on this one particular chromosome. Like, There's not that many people that study the little telomere on that one particular chromosome. So how can they really have national reputation? I mean, I guess the other 12 people that study that little telomere on that little chromosome might know of that person and within their field, they have that reputation, but, but beyond that, like what is their influence? Like how many people are really reading the journal of the little telomere on that one little chromosome? Like, probably not that many people. So if they wanna get their word out more broadly and their influence more broadly, we have a tool, we have we have social media and building platform on social media is very important. And that takes many, many years of posting regularly and sharing content and sharing your thoughts And having more and more people pick it up. You know, it's measured somewhat in followers, not entirely though. It's not like you could say, I have 10,000 followers, therefore I should be a full professor. That's, you know, that's not exactly the point. The point is having a way to get your message more broadly reached. So for instance, the EM match advice series, I think is a great example. So if I had written, you know, there's 35-ish episodes now. So if I had written 35 papers about how to get into emergency medicine residencies, with a target audience of medical students, like, you know, that's the goal of EM match advice. It's advice about how to get into residency. If I would written those 35 articles and published them, even in EM journals, how many medical students would have ever read those articles? Like four or five really hard gunners and probably would have been me as a medical student. But right right, now, they're not even six hard gunners. So, you know, gunners aside, no one would have ever found those those articles. But to date, we've had 120,000 Unique listeners to our our series, and you think, well, that's seven years. It doesn't sound like that many, but there's only about twenty five hundred students who go into emergency medicine annually. You know, with hundred and twenty thousand unique listens, my guess is a lot of medical students have listened to that podcast and have taken something away from it. So, you know, that built platform for me. I think there's a lot of residents probably who listened to Michelle and I banter about how to get honors in your clerkship at some point along the way, and that built my platform in many ways. So. I think social media is a very, very powerful tool, if used wisely, and gets back a little bit to just being a great medical educator and thinking about curriculum design. There's lots of tools out there. You can use a smart whiteboard. You can use a high-fidelity medical simulator. You could use social media. It's a question of what tool is the right tool in the toolbox to do the thing that you want to do. And social media, I think, becomes the right tool more and more frequently today.
0: Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit more as we progress along this conversation about the EM MASH Advice Series, but... You mentioned briefly just now that if you use social media wisely, so for faculty and for residents and fellows and students who are thinking about starting to get either build their platform on a social media or trying to think about kind of get their brand on social media within medical education. So how do you go about using social media wisely itself so that you can, let's say I have a Twitter and I want to be the expert or, the you know, start want to start building my brand in terms of medical education on Twitter. How do I go about doing that wisely so that I'm not, you know, going through numerous hurdles along the way?
1: Sure. It's a long path, first of all. So I, it's not like you can just get a Twitter account and tomorrow have a million followers and be, be the end all, be all of education and emergency medicine. It takes a bit of commitment and a bit of sweat equity and elbow grease to get yourself out there and get bit of an audience so there's a couple of different techniques i think that are important first you have to realize who are the end users or in this case the learners right you're teaching them something who are the learners and where are the learners so if your learners are patients patients are on facebook they're on instagram and they're now more and more on TikTok. so are you going to be a physician influencer on one of these platforms physician influencers thrive on Instagram and TikTok more than they do on Facebook or Twitter. So for for teaching patients, you have to be a a user of those platforms, I believe. If you want to influence other physicians, you know, other physicians are generally on Facebook and different community groups that are on there. Again, I'm not on Facebook, so I, I don't tend to use that as my platform, or they're on Twitter and they're using Twitter if they're about maybe 25 to probably 55 years of age, maybe I would say your 30 and 40 year olds or 50 year olds are using Twitter, and they tend to already have a job. So they often are practicing physicians. So if that's the group you want to influence and become noteworthy within that, then that's, you know, that's a very valid platform to use. Argue that those people are starting to get more and more on Instagram to show their vacation photos, and they could be your potential audience. Certainly, I think 20 somethings and to some degree, teenagers are on Instagram. So you can use that wisely. I would reference academic life and emergency medicines. Instagram account is fantastic. It's so well done. It has graphics that move and are animated. It's not just a still photo of Michelle Lynn on a beach, trying to teach you something. I mean, it's, it's something much more than that. Again, these are all tools. You have to think about what is the job I wanna accomplish. And that first question is who are my learners? So now that you've got your learners picked, then you have to say, well, how do I use the platform optimally? And I'm gonna take Twitter because Twitter is the platform I lean into the most. So I have a somewhat professional Twitter account. I generally only tweet about a couple of things. I tweet about medical education quite regularly. So if I find an article that I think is really great, I'll tweet it out and oftentimes with like one sentence or two sentences considering the character of women in Twitter, that you know it was my take on the article, the reason that I thought it was a cool article. So I'm curating it like in a museum for other people. I'm going to the dense library of science and medicine that's out there in the digital world and I'm picking this one article for a specific group of learners, those that I know follow me on Twitter, and I'm curating that piece of literature for them and putting it in context as to why they should stop and read it, right? There's something very powerful in that action. And if you can do it well, you'll build your follower base. It's funny, I just posted a couple of days ago, a photo of an infographic on the wall of our emergency department that was created by our clinical pharmacists. And it's about different types of, it's about TPA, and essentially, and it's, you know, competitor medications, essentially. It's, you know, it's a fight between them. So they have little boxing gloves. It's really cute. And I thought it was, it was worth posting. You never know what post is going to take off, but it's had close to 400 likes and lots and lots of retweets just because it's really cool information. And I mean, I didn't write the information rather on that whiteboard, but I took a picture of it and I shared it and I said, well, I thought it was cool and it got leg. So that's the first use of my professional Twitter account. The second I, write about medicine, so, you know, medical education, medicine, and then I write a lot about the Stanford Cardinal because it's the greatest mascot ever made, and I like all Stanford sports, so I, I tweet a lot about that, and I teach various classes, both undergrad and medical school, so I, I like my student-athletes, so I tweet a lot about their teams, and you have to be pretty good about staying professional on your account. I definitely make, you know, I make some errors, I sometimes post about my family where I'm really proud of my daughter at her volleyball game or, you know, et cetera, but, but by and large, I stick to my message. And sticking to your message means your, your readers, your, your followers, the folks within your platform are going to get used to what it is that you offer to them. And then you have to offer it on a regular basis. Now we we know who our learners are, we pick the correct tool, we know how to use it, we're using it professionally, we're curating material for folks, you know. and then you need to use it regularly, you need to post regularly. So I argue that for every one thing that you read on a social media platform that you think, how oh, that's cool. Like I read that post and I went and clicked on that blog post. and I really learned something from that blog post. That was cool. Go back and do five of your own posts. So a five to one give and take rule. And if you follow that rule, you'll put way more content out than you are taking in. And that degree of prolific tweeting, I just made that up, prolific tweeting, will really, uh, I think, help build your platform and, and get people to recognize who you are within, within the digital space. And over time, come to trust your posts because they're going to hopefully click on these articles that you're suggesting or click on these blog posts that you're suggesting. One final tip I'll, ha- I'll say is that a scientist who studies the little telomere on that one particular chromosome needs to, to write a blog post every single time she writes a journal article because otherwise no one's ever going to find your journal article. But if you put a blog post out about your journal article and then you use social media to promote that blog post about that journal article, well now you're going to have thousands or tens of thousands of people reaching that journal article that would never have reached it before. And you there are tools to measure how effectively you do that. So altmetric being one of them and you know we could talk about that sometime if you if you'd like, but you know there are measures of just how Influential at the article level, an article is, and it's how well that you publicize that article that drives your altmetric score up. So, you know, there's even external measures of just how good you are at one of these at one of these actions.
0: Yeah, I really like that term, prolific tweeting, and that advice. Now yeah, we should coin that. that. That's trademark. Yes,
1: everybody. Yeah,
0: started here today. <laughs> and the, the topic of the five to one rule that you've kind of helped, you know, advise. That's that's really useful and having come across so many different articles that I've personally benefited from on Twitter, I feel like if I had followed that same five-to-one rule, I would have had a lot more out, you know, outreach there myself. So that's definitely something I'm going to start to apply my own uh, Twitter page as well. So really thank you for all that you know, incredible advice that, you,
1: that you've uh, provided so far. I think the simplest thing you can do is if you read an article, generally we read our articles online now, right? If you read an article and you think it's cool, Go up to scroll to the top. There's going to be a little button that says share and you can share it you know, to Reddit or to Twitter or to you, know, you can save it to your Mendeley account or whatever. But I would say click on share, pick the platform that you like the most and you'll see a, a number of platforms usually listed, Pinterest and all kinds of things and use that platform and just send it out. And that's the last thing you do when you read a journal article. Every time you read a journal article, just be like, oh, that was really cool. I'm going to tweet that out. And you know, why wouldn't you? It takes 30 seconds to do it. And you're sharing something that you thought was cool with people who think you're cool enough to read your Twitter post. So, it's a simple action, but it, it's not that you need to be on Twitter all day long, you know, scrolling constantly at work. And you know that that's not, I think, the right use of the platform. I think the right use of the platform is what I described: like, read a cool article, tweet it out, move on with your day. Yeah,
0: I think the idea of curating the content within a museum is a great way to go about it when you're trying to think about building your Twitter page. Um, at least that's kind of some of the approaches that I've had when I thought about this as well. So when you allude to, you know, like a museum museum curator and when they're coming up with that content to uh, publish or to upload or share, that's a great way to think about it as an analogy. And now essentially we're going to talk about, you've talked about this quite a few times over our conversation so far in terms of the EMH advice series. We're going to take a change, transition a little bit and talk about our medical students who are listening as well. So, by the time that this podcast is uploaded, it'll likely be close to the end of the interview season. Virtually, we've gone through a cycle of this last year. Uh, and now, so for this year, another year virtually, now we're, the residents or the students are will be coming up with their rank list. We'll start thinking about the places that they interviewed at and start to come up with their gut feel or their rank list, essentially. So, as the residency interview cycle comes to a close, and for those listeners who are going to be thinking about, this, what advice would you have when they're coming up with their rank list and obviously understanding that, you know, this is a virtual cycle and hopefully we can return back to an in-person cycle soon, but what advice would you offer to those students in terms of coming up with their rank list and coming up with how to go about
1: coming up with that uh, in this virtual cycle? So first I would go to alien.com and search EM Match Advice and find the episode on how to make a rank list. I think a lot of the information still holds true. And in fact, at the time, the program director from University of Cincinnati was on that particular episode. His advice I thought was really great, actually. I I still remember this from the episode many years ago. And he said that if at the end of the day, you stopped and called the person you love the most, your boyfriend or girlfriend or your, your mom, and you're like, I think I found my program, that that's a really important signal to not forget. So if you did that in November, Don't forget you did that. That's probably a really good signal. So I've always um, carried that piece of advice um, that I attribute to to your formal PD at University of Cincinnati, Brian. I think, coined that. It was was a really great piece of advice. But I would say there's a number of things to do. Number one, your Excel spreadsheet that you made, you should trash that right now. So go delete it. I'll hold on. All right, hopefully it's deleted now. Next, you're going to deactivate your studentdoctor.net account. That's going to take you a few more seconds so i'll, I'll hopefully we we'll can do that at the end of the episode i don't want to pause for that but in a dramatic way i should because it's it's really just a place of horrors and torture and you really shouldn't go there as a medical student i think it's it just it's like instagram is to a teenage girl it just doesn't do anything good for your psyche psyche, uh, psyche. so okay so now that we've done those two actions you have to make your list i think brian's advice is great if you obviously did something at the end of the day that signaled to someone else that you found a really great program, then move those things to the top of your your table. And I'll say your table. So this is the exact way that I help make a rank list for every medical student. I've done this for two decades now. So I write every program down in a little scrap of paper, and I move them around on a table. I think analog is the way to go with this. So take your scraps of paper that have the places that you were pretty happy about at the outset, put them at the top, and the places that just you had disdain for, you know, the pizza was terrible at lunch. The residents were mean. Whatever it is, whatever thing left you with a bad taste in your mouth, move those to the bottom, and then everything else sits sort of off to the side, and that's going to be the middle of your list. So then go to the bottom of your list first, because it's the easiest to make. So imagine yourself on on match day, crying your eyes out. As you matched at the bottom of your list like which program would make you cry more okay now put those things in order and that's the bottom now we're, now we can leave that alone because there's no way you're going to go that far down your list just by law of averages it's not going to happen to you so that fun exercise is, is behind you so now you have to go to the top of your list and you know the top of your list is made up a lot about in a formula a lot about gut feeling but also about the program attributes that are really important. So, you know, location generally being the most important to folks. And we just published a study in AEM ENT that said that the average distance traveled by a medical student for residency is about 600 miles. So how close you are to people you love and things sometimes please into that. And then you have to think about like what, what programs actually to advance my career in the ways that I want it to. And Surprisingly, that becomes, I think, you know, folks' third or fourth criterion when they're when they're making the top of their list, but it's an important one. Similarly to the exercise of the bottom of your list, like what would you be the most proud of on, on interview day or on match day rather, if you opened your envelope and you saw not the number one program on your list, like what would make you most proud? Your pride can come from it, it's a great program. It could come from I got to stay home near my family. It could come from a variety of reasons. Like that becomes number one you know, you should probably go into interview season ha- kind of having a sense of what like one, one, two, and three are going to be. And you know maybe you were blown away by these other programs, but generally one of the top three were one of the programs that you were hot on to begin with in the, in the season. So that's often a good marker that you were at least a little bit right along the way. Anyway, so you order the top and the top portion of your list should be places that you're happy no matter what. And that could be one place, that could be seven places it depends, you know, how agreeable a person you are. I, I myself went around on the interview trail and hated most places. So the, you know, the bottom of my list was not so bottom. And I struggled in the middle of my list. I I went in with three programs and I'll tell the students, this is, you know, fate works in mysterious ways. I had three programs that I moved one, two, and three numerous times on the very final day. And then I submitted my list. So I went right up until the I mean, I said earlier, I'm a type A medical student. So I, I just changed things over and over and over again, right up until the last minute. And I trained at Stanford. I mean, things happen for a reason. But that, so then you did that. So next, you have to do the middle of your list. And this is sometimes the hardest part of your list. And I would argue the middle of your list should be just like program reputation. If you're going to go down to six or seven, you should go down to six or seven, and it should be the best program that you can get into. And it shouldn't be about location at that point. It should be about training opportunities. And maybe they're the you know the best program on your list, but lower down because of you know some odd faculty interaction you had that day. Well, selection bias being selection bias, maybe there's a lot of other really great faculty there, right? Like get past that. you know maybe the pizza was just it was off that day, like get past that. So you know you you need to put the best programs where you need to put them and and that's sort of how I would argue you should make a rank list so if this was next year's cohort listening to this episode, though, I have um, another technique. Already, ready, Hansa? So I think all medical students should take a selfie at the end of the interview day. So they should walk out of the building and stop what they're doing and take a selfie. And then they should rank order the selfies at the end because your face will tell the story of if you liked the place a lot or if it was like, mm, I don't know, or if it was a real dud. Like, you know, you you can tell your own expression in a mirror and you you could certainly figure out your right list just by, yourself. I, I want to do this as a trial someday. I think this would be a completely unfundable study that would be a lot of fun to do. But I think, uh, I think there's, there's merit to it. We just, we need to, we need to research study to prove them right about this. But the selfie technique I think is most important.
0: Honestly, you bring up a great point. Instagram might take you up on that offer potentially about go. it
1: next year. <laughs> I, I actually That's and a great, I, that's a great use of Instagram. I love it. I like that a lot. We're coming up with some great ideas today. These
0: exactly. ideas fly and left and right
1: on this podcast. I love them. <laughs> you got prolific tweeting. Now you got this Instagram yeah. next year. We're
0: going to be What's funded by Instagram next? for this. We'll see. <laughs> but no, that's that's incredible advice. I think gut feeling or that signal initially that you call for your loved one to share your excitement that speaks volumes in terms of how you personally feel about that program. And then you know the bottom of the list advice as well is incredible. But This entire podcast, Dr. Jazandi, thank you so much for the incredible advice you've been able to provide for us and for the listeners. Thank you so much for taking your time out on this you know busy schedule to connect with us and to share your thoughts. And for the listeners, thank you so much for everything that you do. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Take care, everyone. Thank you, Hamsa.